welcome everyone to the DRW live interviews show. Not sure what we're calling it yet, but today we have Megan Gessler. And of course we met through the Summer Institute. I have so much respect for the work that she's been doing in the nature-based early childhood education world, but I'm gonna give her a moment to introduce herself and we're just gonna have a conversation today. And don't be distracted by the, the dog that wants to show up every time I push record. <laughs> You can't expect me not to be distracted. I'm a dog lover. <laughs> um, hi, I'm Dee's friend. I'm honored to call her a friend of mine. And yes, my name is Megan and I am the Early Childhood Program Coordinator for uh, the Little Trees Program at the Morton Arboretum in Lyle, Illinois. And this is our third year there in operation. But I also previously ran a nature preschool at a local forest preserve district for seven years prior to that. And um, I got my master's at Antioch University. I can't say enough good things about Antioch. And um, that's me in a nutshell. I really don't wanna give you my LinkedIn <laughs> resume because honestly, I am I'm a fellow learner just like everyone else. And um, I just, I love working with children and working out in nature and the fact that I get to do that for a profession um, is it's not a lost blessing on myself. I am full of gratitude for getting to work with those kids every day. Um, and I'm sure a, a lot of other people can relate to that as well. Absolutely. Oh, and now I'm just echoing. This is a mess. <laughs> Let's try this again. So I can totally relate to the LinkedIn account because I've refuse to actually like make it professional people keep recommending it but i'm like guys that's a lot of work i don't know if you feel that way but it's just like <laughs> it's a lot of work to maintain but i'm like right. one day in like five years i'll finally like have it right and then it'll be something else right <laughs> you only have the bandwidth to do so much so i understand that but i try about once a year to go on and update it just to make sure it's current um because the last person that interviewed me read off um, my LinkedIn right at the beginning of the interview. And I thought, oh, time to update. There's some inaccuracy. Wow. <laughs> something new, just hearing that. I'm like, okay, maybe I should really work on this. <laughs> so one of the things that um, I really appreciate from your work is emergent curriculum like the first time I came across you at Summer Institute that was like one of the biggest things that you talked about and we met in 2019 so I started going to Summer Institute in 2018 but I came across you the same year that I started presenting too mm -hmm. and I just found it so fascinating because I come from a very like traditional early childhood education setting where it's like we just I wasn't trained to do emergent curriculum. And mm -hmm. if it wasn't for like your presentation, I don't know if when I like dove into Outback, like if I would have even understood like that's, that is a real thing. So mm -hmm. could you talk about that a little bit more? Sure, yeah. Um, what I do kind of borders on emergent slash project-based, it just depends on really where the kids are at and, and what they're interested in. So kind of an overview of, my curriculum and philosophy for um, the programs that I run is that we do have um, a loose curriculum so that there are always um, themed totes full of activities and books and 
art and craft ideas, um, process art, I should say. And then, um, you know, it's just full of all sorts of goodies and ideas for each theme. And it's seasonally based because usually what the kids are interested in is what they're seeing and experiencing when they are immersed in nature. And so we know there are certain themes that are gonna pop up through the year, or we assume that. So we've got those at the ready. Um, but you know, kids come up with the most interesting things um, that that kind of, I mean, it's their learning that you have to grab a hold of. And it, it can seem tangential to you, but it's not to them. And so um, I know you're familiar with my pirate story, which um, kind of took hold one year uh, when I was teaching because I don't have a theme boat ready for pirates. I wasn't ready for that in Illinois. <laughs> We're not, we don't even border an ocean. So I'm not sure where the pirates would have come from. <laughs> um, but to make it um, simpler so that your audience can kind of understand emergent curriculum. Um, my kids read a book called uh, Rocks the Box in one year. And it was about some children on the East Coast. If you haven't, if you don't have this book, put it in your library. Highly recommend. And they were creating a town, a little tiny village out of seashells and rocks and the things that they found in nature. And so my kids just really grabbed a hold of that book. They gravitated towards it. And we didn't have seashells. Um, really, you know, abundantly um, where I'm at in Illinois. We do have shells in the river, but not, you know, like the East Coast does. So they created an entire village that they named Sticks of Boxen, and they phonetically spelled it out on a sign. It's the cutest sign ever. Um, and they, I gave them boards that they could paint on, and they created something called Girls Village, it's a girls village, but they spelled it out. It was just adorable. And so they became city planners that year and they, they planned an entire community um, within a grove of evergreens. And it still stands today. And those kids go back and they talk about Sticks of Oxen and they have like just the best memories there. And you can work in all of those quote unquote academics to whatever it is that they're interested in. They were, they were spelling out words because they were so excited about their village and it just came organically. It didn't feel forced at all. They weren't sitting at a desk working on a worksheet. Um, this, this was coming from their heart. And when you sna ensnare their heart, the yes. learning just flows. So, um, and, and they thought about roads and green spaces and what kind of buildings that they would need in Sticks of Oxen for a community to um, thrive. So just think about all of the learning that went on just from that simple emergent curriculum. They created maps, 3D maps, regular maps. So we're talking spatial awareness. Um, so yeah, follow the kids lead. It, it will take you to great places and it will inspire you as a teacher you know, it's not the same stuff that you're pulling out and same old tired tricks from your bag of tricks. It keeps you on the toes and, and excited about learning alongside with the children. Absolutely. That was, a, I can hear myself echo and I just want to like fix it. You don't sound echoey over here. Okay, that's good. I definitely, so when I had the Outbackers, I feel like we didn't have pirates, but 
they started to um, really explore like the zero scape yard that we have here because of course I live in the desert. Um, but they started to look for treasures and it was really interesting because they would just, every day that they would show up, they just kind of added to the story, you know, mm -hmm. and we just went along with it. But how do you navigate that? Like, how do you help parents understand that um, what emergent curriculum is? Because sometimes I think parents are like looking for, well, I want to know, like, what yeah. are you doing? How do I know they're going to yeah. learn something? So because we we're also product of the of the same system that you're talking about right like we are it's so ingrained in us what school slash education looks like so it is scary for a first-time parent to think of something um else that doesn't look like what they are used to for their child because they want their child to be quote unquote prepared mm -hmm. for kindergarten um and really um it's going to take a societal shift to understand that we are not preparing them for their next grade level. We are preparing them for life. We want lifelong learners. And if you look at the giant tech companies, guess where they're sending their children to school? Montessori, Reggio, nature-based. And they don't let their children play with electronics before a certain age. Mm -hmm. So they understand the value of what they call soft skills. I hate calling them soft skills because they are the most important skills right. uh, that you will need to thrive in a community. How can yeah, you collaborate yeah. with others? Um, you know, talk about building grit and perseverance and stick-to-itiveness. So um, those are the things that are gonna get you through life, right? It's not rote memorization of your ABCs. So yeah. how, do, how do we sell parents on something that we early childhood educators know to be developmentally appropriate practice, right? So I document, as every educator out there knows, it's kind of like a little bit of the bane of your existence, document, document, document. But if we're all utilizing that same early childhood language, um, when we communicate things to the parents, they will understand, okay, this is their profession, they know what they're talking about. This is what my child is getting out of this situation. So if we were talking about the sticks of boxing, for example, I would document the literacy skills they were building, the civil engineering, the, yeah, yeah. you know, everything else that came with mapping, all of that, I would, I would attach one of our state's early learning benchmarks to it mm -hmm. so that they understand that it, this looks like play. And yes, it is play. Um, but guess what they're getting out of it? And usually within the first few weeks, I get parents telling me, oh my gosh, I had no idea that my child would be getting this much out of your program. Some of them had enrolled their children in two different types of programs because they wanted the academic program and the nature-based program. And pretty soon we see that those kids are now enrolling for more days in the nature-based program and they are no longer at the traditional type of program. Yes. And that is not a knock on traditional type programming. It's just saying that people are starting to recognize the value of a nature-based emergent curriculum. Absolutely. So one of the things that I definitely took away in 2019 was not just the emergent curriculum, but that same year, I, I clearly I was like a Megan like fan because at natural start at the conference, I went to your, um, <laughs> your session 
And that's when I learned about Story Park. Yeah. And um, I mentioned that because, again, coming from that very traditional setting, we use what's called Teaching Strategies Gold. Mm-hmm. Great system. Yeah. Um, very intense. But I really enjoyed Story Park. Did I do a great job this past year with the parents? I could have done better. But like any new system, it just takes time to figure out like what works best, what you need to do different. But I really liked the, um, how easy it was. Like I could literally take a picture of the kids doing something and then just link like literally um, the standards of whatever Mm -hmm. the the kids were doing, the outbackers were doing. And I think that would have been helpful. I think it was helpful to parents, but like I said, that I, it kind of happened in waves. And then yeah. of course things happened in March. So pandemic, right. I, I think it's also um, an easy tool to use for um, beginning teachers to yes. learn what your state um, benchmarks are. Um, because when you document in Story Park, you create a story out of photos and then you attach learning tags to those photos, mm-hmm. like what is happening in that photo. And anytime you type in a word, like numbers or something like that, your state benchmark will pop up and you can click on um, whatever it was they were learning. So if it was, um, you know, recognizing written numbers or something like that. You click on that, it attaches it to the story right away. So you become really familiar then with your state benchmarks by using Story Park. And by the way, I get no money from them. So I can say this unbiased. Look, I say it all the time to people, I'm like, no kickbacks. No kickbacks, (laughs) uh, but I do enjoy using them as a documentation tool, yeah. Yes. So... I guess one of my other questions is, is how did you get into nature-based early mm-hmm. childhood education? When did that journey start for you? Yeah, that is a convoluted story. <laughs> so I was a journalism major and that's where I found my husband at Northern Illinois University. And then I graduated and, and was this businesswoman, wasn't planning on having kids. I was out to conquer the world. <laughs> And then along came a little baby. So everything changed. And as she grew, I started working in um, the parochial school where I had her enrolled. And then after my son came along, I started working in the Montessori where he started going to school. And then um, shortly after that, I started working at a forest preserve district. So I kind of got to marry everything that I liked out of my last experiences Um, with the Forest Preserve District as we created a nature-based program. And so while I was um, managing that program, I started to go to Antioch University, New England, where I really kind of honed my practice and and solidified my personal educational philosophy. Okay. And that's kind of what um, created both that program and the the program that I'm running now at the Morton Arboretum. So... um, I know it's kind of like follow the bouncing ball on my journey. It took me till the age of 40 to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. And, <laughs> and now I found it and I can't imagine doing anything else. Understandable. So <laughs> one of the things that um, I would say, I don't want to call it a project, but a group that I'm in with you that you started, 
Um, and I hope I say the title correctly. The Nature Based <laughs> Early Childhood Education Council for Administrators. Could you talk about what inspired you to start that group? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I know that's a mouthful to say that. I was just, I had to look at it. It's in my notes. <laughs> Council of Nature Based Early Childhood Education Administrators. So, um, I have to give a little backstory there in order to say how this came about. So um, seven years ago, I formed the Northern Illinois Nature Preschool Association, which we lovingly refer to as NIMPA, um, because at that time in Illinois, there was nobody else doing nature-based preschools. Um, and I had driven three hours north to Schlitz in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, wow. to find out what they were doing. And I was so impressed with Patty Bailey and the work that she was doing. Um, but they were so far away and I needed to find people closer to me who were doing the work that I was doing. <laughs> Nobody was, but lo and behold, I found two other facilities that were just starting up. And so we kind of got together and we shared resources and um, talked about our failures and our successes and kind of we provided a little bit of professional development for each other because we each had our own, our own strengths. Um, and we decided that that was working so well and that nature preschools seemed to be, um, you know, in, in forward movement. So we thought we would create NIMPA and now we have over 200 members, oh, wow. um, right? And it's free membership um, at nympa.org. And um, we provide four member offerings per year of professional development and networking um, where everybody can get together and talk about the same things that we talked about in the very beginning, just on a larger scale. So um, a few years into NIMPA, I got a phone call from Christy Merrick at Natural Start Alliance, and she asked me to be on the leadership team there. They um, wanted to know what we were doing at NIMPA because they wanted to do it on a national level. I didn't know we were the only regional association in America. <laughs> and so she was, really excited about you know what was going on in Illinois how could we make this national um and so I I got to know um a few people scattered here and there that were doing similar work um specifically with regional associations um because I am the chair of the networking committee for natural start um so I got to know Liza Lowe really well who's at Inside Outside on the east coast and um when the pandemic hit, we were on a phone call together and I was telling her, you know, I got together with all of the administrators in the, in the NIMPA team to talk about the challenges that we are now facing because it's unique challenges. Right, right now, everybody is looking at nature-based education mm -hmm. and wanting to know more about it. And we're all getting, you know, this huge surge and influx of of query and what what are we doing? How can how can we do a little bit of what what you're doing? So there was definite need for that discussion. So um, I was talking to Liza about how really impactful it was for me to get together with just the admin team to talk about how how can we address this? How can we create something that will reassure the families that what we're doing is a healthy option? Um, and also, how can we address that, the rising inquiry from, from those programs? And so she said she was having this 
similar conversations on the East Coast, maybe we should combine and, and see what we come up with. So we had a Zoom meeting and everyone was so emphatic that we needed to create a position statement and get it out there as soon as possible to let people know, um, you know what the benefits are of nature-based early childhood education and specifically during a pandemic. Um, yes. And so that's kind of how it came about. And I already had a Facebook group going um, of a few friends of mine that are administrators. And so I said, let's just use that, dump everybody in there who wants to be a part of that. And so all of the names that you see on that position statement, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be friends with all of them and, and um, work at, as a peer amongst a great great group of people who helped create that position statement really um, because it's everybody's position statement. It's definitely not mine. And Liza and Beth Wilson put in a ton of work in, into that um, position statement as well. And every month afterwards, we're going to come out with a highlight of one of the sections of the position statement that will exemplify. So if you are new to delving into the world of nature-based education, if you're a public school educator who wants to, you know, grab part of that for themselves and, and kind of, you know, weave it into your already existing curriculum, um, we're going to give you some ideas and that will be through intellectual um, benefits, social emotional benefits, and physical health benefits. And we'll give you ideas of what you can do to address all three of those areas um, in your own classroom, sort of give you some tools. And if you want to join us, if you are also an administrator of a nature-based preschool and want to join us, um, you can look up Diona Williams or Megan Gessler on Facebook and send us a message and we'll hook you up into the group or you can try to look for the group and we'll add you in. Absolutely. I can already say just from the short time that I've been a part of the group, it's been really beneficial um, because again, being in Arizona where there, there's not a lot of people doing this type of work, right. they are, they're far away. They're yes. at least three hours away from me. And so it's been nice to connect with other administrators about doing this type of work. But what people don't know about the admin side of things, it's more than just like working with the the children directly, but it's all the paperwork that you have to do. It's getting ready for the following year, navigating through strange times, like what we're going through right now. And so to have that type of support system, I find it to be beneficial. Um, so I, again, I, we're promoting it hardcore just because it's like, it's really, you don't have to do this alone. Like that's my uh, point. For sure. In fact, we just had an organic discussion pop up um, because Catherine Coons Hubbard from Schlitz in Milwaukee said, what are you guys doing in cold weather? Like how, what's your cutoff temperature? And it's such a hot topic right now for those of us who are living in temperate, colder temperate zones <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. that we have to deal with right now. And so that's exactly what this group is for right now. It's almost like crisis mode. We are really just helping each other navigate this new um, situation and for you know the few of us scattered around who are doing this, it's it's really important that we learn from the successes and failures of others and what they're doing right now. That's why it's super important. And also wanted to note 
that this isn't like an organization where there's a board or um, a hierarchy. It's just a group of, of admin coming together um, during this time just specifically um, to address these types of issues. And so those um, types of discussions, like if you had one D that you wanted to talk about, um, yeah, then you post it and, and create a Zoom and the people who are interested in having that discussion will hop on. Absolutely. Because one of the things that I brought up the last time we were all talking, um, because this is the interesting thing about being an administrator navigating during these times, is every state or county or city is impacted by this situation very differently. So typically when I would have been, when Outbackers would have been returning back, um, although our numbers had declined, but I needed to make a decision about if I was opening really before like September. Yeah. That was just the bottom line um, for me for business purposes. And then the other part that I have to navigate through too is, I mean, there's the insurance part, like the liability. Mm -hmm. If someone were to be sick in my care, I live in a rural space and it's like, we don't have the same amount of accessibility as like a city. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so it's just like, if someone were to get sick, like these are barriers that I, that I'm enduring. Mm -hmm. And so those are things that I would bring up in the group to say, how have you navigated through this? What have you done? Because the other piece is, is that someone else may have been able to operate this entire time. And yeah. I'm not going to say like, they haven't experienced someone being sick or not being sick, but I just know from other conversations, whether it was with this group or not, it's inevitable. Somebody like you're going to get in contact with it one way or another. Um, but my thing is like, how do I keep the children safe, the parents safe? Like, and it just, I don't know. That's what I love about the group is that I can take those types of um, issues that I'm impact that I'm going through as an administrator and saying, okay, what policies do you guys have? Like, how do you navigate through extreme heat? Because that's what we've had since March and we yeah. are finally hitting fall tomorrow. Oh my gosh. Like It's going to be 40 degrees at night and like uh, a high of 65. I know you're, you're like, that's summertime for us. Uh, it's 34 degrees tomorrow when my kids arrive at school and I don't know if it will be raining or snowing. So. <laughs> oh my gosh. Which leads to another, like, this is another great conversation um, because I feel like this comes up for someone that lives in an extremely hot place. Um, how do you help parents and not just parents, but educators too, that are thinking about like, well, I want to do more outdoor things with my children, but mm -hmm. it's snowing, it's mm -hmm. raining, or it's a hundred degrees outside. Um <laughs> And I, I'm thinking about Phoenix because Phoenix, yeah. it could be 11 o'clock at night and literally 100 <laughs> degrees, whereas I'm three hours south and it's not that extreme, but I definitely, for myself, we, I tend to do things earlier in the day. So by the time it like starts to actually get really hot outside, we're not even in session at that point. And that's another oh, reason good. I don't start till September, you know, but how yeah. do you do that in cold weather? Like you guys get all four seasons. <laughs> Yeah, totally different. And I'm sure you have a bag of tricks that you utilize with water play and, and things like that um, to combat the heat. 
Um, yeah, so I, I mean, there are activities that we absolutely love to do in the snow and things that you can do that you can only do in the cold in Illinois. And so um, I actually, it's my favorite time to explore with the kids. One, there's no ticks. Two, there's no poison ivy. <laughs> See? So you just wait till all of that dies away. <laughs> and then the kids um, have easier access into and out of the forest because there isn't all of that brush and bramble stuff in front of it anymore. Um, it's so easy for them to see wildlife and to track things. Um, so winter is absolutely my favorite time to teach with these kids. And that is actually when those emergent um, curriculum type of things start to happen because they've they found their groove. They understand where their strengths are in their community. And um, we've worked through forming that kinship and the growth mindset and they're ready to go. So like winter is my absolute favorite. Um, but if we're talking about cold weather temperatures being dangerous, uh, yeah, that's another topic altogether. But we've, we follow the NOAA uh, wind chill factor and it will, it's a chart that um, NOAA puts out and it tells you how many minutes a person can be outside without getting frostbite. And that is for exposed skin. Um, so we absolutely make sure that we never exceed any of those limits outside with the children. Um, and we want kids to love nature. So we're not gonna have them outside if, it's, if they're not comfortable. Yeah. And, they're not comfortable. I'm not comfortable. And let's face it, it's all about me. So <laughs> that will come in. Um, but this year during a pandemic, we do have um, uh, like warming chandeliers. I'm not sure what to call them. And they will be hanging down at our shelter. And our shelter has some vinyl walls on it and a fireplace in there as well. So we have access to that space and there's still a, a good flow and circulation of, of air coming in there. So I'm planning on utilizing that um, for as much as I can, but when it, we're talking sub-zero, I'm not gonna have the kids on a cement shelter floor um, where that's just gonna radiate up through, radiate up through their feet. Um, we will take them inside and we will spread them out before something like that. Wow, how long is your uh, program? How many, how many hours is it a day? So I'm super lucky. I have my personal kids. My students are there three days a week, two and a half hours um, at a time. We have a two day, a three day, and a four day option this year. Nice. Yeah. Nice. I love it. All right. So are there any final thoughts that you want to say before we conclude today's interview? Um, final thoughts of wisdom you're looking for, huh? <laughs> um, well, I would say if you're thinking about doing it, now is the time to really research and dig in to what it is that, um, nat what nature-based early childhood education really is, because um, it has become apparent uh, to many people throughout the world that this movement needs to happen. It's, it's time to declare mutiny <laughs> public um, school. Can I say that? <laughs> and the way that we currently do education, um, you know, so if anything positive can come out of 
a disgusting pandemic. Let it be the catalyst that changes education for our children um, right. and to provide space for them to connect back to nature. And for those of you who don't know what biophilia is, please look it up. It's our innate connection to nature. We, we are born with that. Um, and we have that curiosity about nature. So let's feed it. Let's get the kids out there, get them connecting, take their shoes off, let them walk barefoot on the grass um, and let them really get reacquainted with the environment in which they are part of. We are the environment. Humans are, are the environment just as much as the animals and plants make up the environment. And it's time to get that kinship back and time to take back um, a natural form of learning that seems you know, just fluid and effortless for those kids, for all children. Yes, yes. That is the biggest message that I really wanted um, those that attended Summer Institute that have been in this work for a really long time, like how can you help your community change this narrative of like 15 minute recess outside? Yeah. And because the reality is, is that those of us that have been in the work, whether it's been 20 years or five years or two years or three, we definitely have more experience than those that have never done it before. And they're looking for, they're looking for people like you and I, and so many to say, so how do we do this? You know, yeah. what I mean? so I think that's really great. Try it. Dip your toe in it. And for those beginners, you don't have to be an expert on plants and animals <laughs> in your area. You're learning alongside the kids. And when they see you figuring out the answers and doing it with you, that is going to be more beneficial to them in the long run. You don't have to know it. Just go explore it with the kids and let them lead the way. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Megan, for coming on today. I cannot wait for people to see this very specific interview. And we'll definitely have to do this again. Uh, of course, I'm going to like pick your brain about more emergent curriculum, but I can't thank you enough for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me.